0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and and jump in. Uh, Somebody who's got a watch, can you keep an eye on the time for me? It's one thing to to run late in the first session and uh, interrupt the break, but you you interrupt lunch and you're liable to get killed, especially from a group of dudes. So uh, who can be my clock manager? You got it for me, Clint? Thank you. And Let me pray for us. First of all, guys, thanks for coming and hanging out. I appreciate it. Uh, I didn't write the description for the uh, breakout session, so my fear after reading it myself is I'm not sure I would want to come to a breakout that sounded so in-your-face, but uh, Mikey knows I love manhood and, and loves talk- I love talking about these things, so I think he kind of anticipated the passion that will fill the room. So uh, I'm glad you guys are here. I, I do want to come at this uh, from a, a desire to equip uh, not a desire to berate in, you know, so truthfully, uh, if you put, uh, if you put, we are, uh, we are, this is just for guys. I'm so sorry. It didn't say, it's our fault. We didn't say it in the brochure, but we're going to deal with some male issues. Um, I forgot what I was talking about. Thank you. Uh, if you put us on like a, a scale and, and just that like measures the, Uh, how good we feel about our own personal manhood. Most of us uh, will seem pretty wimpy, truthfully, because just most guys are insecure uh, in how they are doing as a man. So it's not my intent to to beat us up at all, but I do want to challenge us from the Scriptures uh, a little bit together. So that's kind of my intent. Yeah, make yourself at home. We're pretty informal here. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father in heaven, we as men want to assemble together to spend time with you and time with each other, that your word might direct and guide us, that we would learn and be challenged a little bit as brothers. Father, we would long to look back uh, years from now at a season of life where we began to invest ourselves into the betterment of manhood, to be better men, better husbands, better fathers, better singles, better contributors to our churches, that we would reflect the character of Christ more accurately. And so may this be a defining moment for us as we uh, go about our lives, that we might uh, recognize this as a transition point where manhood becomes more important to us than maybe it has before. And so we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What I'd like to do is is take a peek at a couple different passages. So if you have your Bible, just turn real quickly to Genesis chapter 2. Typically with manhood stuff, you end up spending most of the time talking about marriage, which applies in our, in our church at least to about 50% of the people in the crowd. But I want to talk a little bit about manhood uh, pre-marriage a little bit as well. Genesis chapter 2, uh, actually chapter 1, excuse me, starting in verse 26. Uh, you see the creation of man in a very interesting passage in verse 26 of Genesis 1. Let, God says, let us make man in our image. It's always fascinated me. God does not teach Trinity in verse 26, but it certainly allows for it. Uh, Us, speaking of God in the plural, the word is Elohim. It either means plurality or majesty. And so there's this sense in verse 26 of God making man in the image of God, in the likeness of God. Not in the form of God, important note. I mean, obviously God doesn't have a form, He is a spirit. There is no bodily form to God that... The wording that's used is typically called anthropomorphic, and what it means is uh, God speaks of himself in human form so that we can understand it. Like if I said God's got you in his right hand, he doesn't have a right hand, uh, but it means that he's got you in a place of strength, and so that's kind of the idea. So we're made in the image of God. We have intellect, we have emotion, we have will. Yeah, feel free to grab a chair. Sit wherever, fellas. Uh, We have uh, these things because we are in the image of God. As He makes man, uh, He forms him. I want you to notice who is not present at the forming of man, by the way. Eve is not there yet. Eve is going to be made from the rib of Adam, but not yet. Uh, God has a very special interaction with men, a very special role and position for us as men. And He calls us in verse 26 to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all of the earth, to rule. He created man, verse 27, in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male, and it introduces the concept of female, though not created yet. God blesses them, says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We were talking with Rick yesterday, and he just brought up a fascinating point. Isn't he sharp, by the way? Really, really sharp guy, but he's got a pastor's heart. So I feel like I can understand him. You know, some guys who talk about worldview stuff are so heady, it's like they're just trying to impress you. But he mentioned, what does it mean to be in the image of God, and what does it mean then to subdue the earth and fulfill it? What is the chief end of man? Because it's not the accumulation of stuff, the marrying of the right girl. It's not, uh, you know, what kind of car you drive or how impressive you are in in your corporate life. Truly, the chief end of man is to reflect more accurately the character of God to be a reflection of God. To fill the earth and subdue it is to take the image of God and spread it throughout the earth. It's missional missional in nature. It's not egocentric in nature. It's not selfish. It's selfless. Remember Jesus now in Philippians 2, Paul says of Him, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled Himself and became an incarnation of God. And in many senses, the creation account of Genesis 1, we are to be Uh, A finite, temporal, created being that's created to rule in place of the king here, if you will. uh, And we are called to fulfill the earth, uh, fill it rather, and subdue it. That's our goal in life as men, is to reflect the character of God. Now, you read through the Genesis account and it it gets to be where it seems like it's redundant. Because you've got this creation account in chapter 1 and then this other account in chapter 2 that seems to be reiterating what was. Imagine the book of Genesis not being chronological, at least in the early, t- in the early chapters, but more uh, this sense of chapter 1 is a chronologic view of creation. Chapter 2, a thematic unpacking in detail of the creation of the most important thing ever created, which is mankind. Almost like a pyramid. You know, you've got all the days of creation that finish. Ultimately, with the sixth day, God creates man and then he rests, he Sabbaths. Take that pyramid, point it at yourself. He unpacks in greater detail the most important part. That's chapter 2, which is the creation of man. In that, he gives man specific guidelines, specific things to be about. Uh, interesting that in the first, uh, the first account there in chapter 2, verses 1 and following, man is called to Sabbath. He's called to rest. God doesn't call you as men to work and be workaholics. He calls you as men to live in rhythm work and then rest, work and then rest. That's part of the divine creation narrative. That's God's intent for us, work and then rest, work and then rest. Most of us as men are still little boys wearing big boy clothes trying to please Dad, and so we work and then work and then work and then work and then work as if somehow that's going to earn the favor of God. The greatest thing you could do to earn the favor of God is rest, Sabbath. It's part of God's design for us, work and then rest. Then the creation of the woman comes in, in four and following. Um, God forms Adam from the dust of the earth, takes Eve from his rib, ish, which means man and isha woman, Ish and Eshah, living together without sin in the garden. God had given him the command in verse 15 to, uh, of chapter 2 uh, of, of not eating from any tree of the garden. Uh, he could work, uh, he, could, he could build a tree house in that tree, he could hang a tire from it, but he couldn't eat from that tree, verse 17. If he did, he would die. Most of you uh, know the account of the passivity of Adam that we inherit, which has been the Achilles heel of mankind from the very beginning in the garden. Uh, He was called to teach his wife the scriptures. That was his command. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a very difficult thing for me to do, to teach my wife the scriptures, and, and I'm a pastor. So i got to figure, if I have a hard time being a spiritual leader in my home, chances are you have a hard time being one in yours. But that was clearly the command to Adam. How'd he do? Well, he did all right. Chapter 3, you see the account. The serpent, by the way, doesn't go to him as the head, goes to her. Why? You ever watch uh, uh, Planet Earth or Discovery Channel or whatnot? Uh, The lions that are hunting don't ever go for the strongest. They go for those that are most vulnerable. And your wife, the woman that God entrusts to you, is going to be vulnerable. You leave, according to the Scripture, mom and dad. You join to your wife to become one. You have to come out from under mom and dad, form your own covering, your own headship. She simply transitions from headship of pops to headship of you. She's vulnerable. You're there to protect her. Song of Solomon in chapter 2 The woman reflecting on her man says, Of all the trees of the forest, I took delight in his shade. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He's brought me to his banquet hall, his banner over me is love. As she reflects upon the provision of her man, there's a covering there. So she is vulnerable. The serpent comes to her, challenges her, challenges God's word, God's justice, God's love, all in one interaction. And then in verse 6, the woman sees that the tree was good for food. Take note, any time your senses dictate what is right and wrong, you are hosed. And I'll promise you, especially for you single guys, if you let your senses dictate what's right and wrong, you'll be, quote, watching a movie with her, this girl that you're dating, and you've got good Christian boundaries. Nothing comes off, nothing below the neck, nothing laying down, and all those other weak sauce things that mean nothing when an erection comes your way. And in the moment, your senses will not lead you to holiness. Your senses will lead you to sin. God's word leads you to holiness. She sh- shifts gears and starts thinking. Sees that it's a delight to the eyes, that the tree is desirable to make one wise. She takes and she eats. And then the passage. The, the passage that in many ways uh, haunts me. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Uh, when I was in grad school, and you've probably, if you've been around here, have heard this passage a lot. It's, it's like the, the, the prime seminal text, if you will, for the uh, demise of manhood. Uh, some guys would suggest that, oh, he was so in love with his wife and such a perfect provision that when she ate and there, therefore fell into sin with disobedience to God, that he, out of love and willingness to be a continual partner for her, ate as well to be with her. That is so awful. Uh, that is so untrue. Uh, truthfully, his problem was he's a weak, saw sissy man like a lot of us are. And he kept his mouth shut. And he listened to the voice of his wife. Interesting to chase throughout Scripture how many times it says, and Abraham listened to the voice of his wife and ended up making a very dumb decision. Famine comes in the land in Genesis. Abraham freaks out, not sure what he should do. Says, well, I guess we'll go to Egypt. They got food there. Goes there, picks up a virus while there. Her name's Hagar. Poly, or, uh, uh, in the process of that, polygamy comes into play. And, and Sarah, his wife, goes, oh, man, we don't have a kid. And God said, you know, from, uh, from you, you know, the nation's going to be born. And so we've got Hagar. Why don't you just have sex with her? And so he listened to the voice of his wife and said, wife, if that is your will, then I guess I'll do that. Uh, there's a very significant temptation we have as men to be passive and allow that passivity to uh, force these ladies to do what God never called them to do. God never wired Eve to be the leader, wired Adam to be the leader. When Adam abdicates his role and puts the pressure on her, she can't carry it. It's too many watts for her. It's too strong a current, and she popped. And when she popped, mankind fell into sin because of that. Truthfully, that pattern, friends, represents and, and uh, replicates all the way through to our day. Uh, if you've been through men's fraternity, Robert Lewis does a fantastic job of laying out the issue of rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility, and leading courageously. Very difficult things to do. The challenge with manhood ultimately is we don't know when it happens. You know, Paul said, when I was a child in First Corinthians 13, I used to think like a child, reason like a child, but when I became a man, I put aside childish things. When did that happen? Like, wouldn't it be great to know, like, hey, congratulations, you turn whatever age and now you're a man, or you have a certain experience and now you're a man. We don't know when it happens, and the Bible doesn't give us a lot of clarity as to when that moment occurs, and so in our culture we snap on ungodly experiences to have that make you a man. First time you have a drink, first time, you know, you end up in bed with some gal, first time you get in a fight and get a black eye, those are when you become a man. Uh, there's a higher calling in manhood than just that. Uh, it's a calling for men to live as men. Uh, and where that moment happens for you, uh, you know, maybe we can have a kingdom of heaven moment here. Y'all remember that movie, Kingdom of Heaven, with uh, uh, the guy who played uh, Legolas in Lord of the Rings? What's his name? The actor? Leo Martin? No, 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 the other guy. Orlando Bloom. Orlando Bloom, you know. And... Uh, and his, his dad gives him the, uh, the command, you know, this is your charge, this is your calling, and then pops him in the mouth and says, and that's so you won't forget it. I mean, if you'd like, we could do that today, and we could just line up. And before you leave here, I'll just pop you in the mouth, just, just real quick, just a little pop, just, just enough to bloody the nose, and then we could say, today we've become men. Because we need to become men. Whenever it happens, it needs to happen. And in our culture specifically, what's happened is we are raising boys. We're not raising men. We're raising boys because we didn't have dads in the home for a lot of us. Or if dad was there, he was absent. And so you got raised by Xbox. You got raised by Nintendo. You know, I Super Mario, that's what I played all the time. You got raised by digital men. And you have no idea, most of us have no idea what manhood is. We need to have those moments. There's a couple of things that I want to bring up just regarding that. The danger in not having men at home is we raise feminized men. Men who don't understand masculinity. Men who aren't sure what it means to walk as men. It's a danger because if you don't know what it means to be a man, then we can't steward a woman. Now, for some folks, Paul's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In fact, turn there. We'll spend a little time in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7 He's pretty clear that for some guys, uh, they have what he calls the gift to be single. Uh, truthfully, I call it a curse, but you can call it whatever you want. <laughs> Being married is the best thing ever happened to me. But he says some have a gift in this manner, some have a gift uh, in another. Uh, you can see that there in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. Uh, there's a sense that as singles we are training ourselves to be men Who someday will steward a wife? One of the concerns I've got is that we don't understand the implications of what we're training ourselves for. We assume that we can just kind of, you know, keep, uh, you know, leveling up our, uh, you know, wizard character, uh, keep doing raids in World of Warcraft, never get a job, still live at home, let mom do your laundry and cook your meals Dad's still paying all your bills and then at 35 when you finally put a ring on your finger it's like ta-da, you become super you know husband when truthfully we're preparing ourselves now for whatever lies ahead some of you are at a season of life where the greatest days are still ahead of you others of you like me are kinda of feeling like you're in the middle of it others are looking at life from the rearview mirror regardless of what season of life you're in I think these principles will apply for example some of you have the gift to be single. If that's you, God bless you. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you're single, in fact, flip over to, uh, to verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. If you're single, you've got a distinct advantage over every one of us who's married. Because you don't have to worry about what mama thinks. So you can stay up late, you can have 15 life groups you're a part of, you can go overseas, every opportunity you get, you can work at Jamba Juice and make next to nothing, and you don't care because it don't matter. Because what do you have to pay for? You're going to go eat ramen, you're going to wear the same pair of clothes all year. So it really doesn't matter, okay? (laughs) So you can focus on pleasing the Lord. But, verse 33, one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Uh, there's a proverb, you've got to be careful, don't quote it to your girl, but it says, where no oxen are, the manger's clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. You want a simple life? You want to have undistracted devotion to the Lord? Stay single. You want the strength that comes from being married? You're going to have to put up with the mess that a marriage brings. Now, don't call your wife an ox, but you understand the principle. If you want the benefit, there's a cost. When I got married, she started buying products I didn't even know existed. I'm like, who needs four different lotions? One for your face, and one for your hands, and one for your body, and one for after sun. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't think I've ever put lotion on in my life, you know? But that, that's the, the strength that comes, though, is the beauty of that woman that's now with you. So he says, verse 33, if you're married, you have to focus on how to please your wife. Now, notice verse 34, your interests at that point, he says, are divided. There's a divided interest. See, guys like to think real real Grecian, God first, wife second. Right? God is the most important, wife's secondary. I go, all right, turn over to 1 Peter, chapter 3. Let's have an argument with Peter about that concept. 1 Peter chapter 3. <coughs> chapter 3 verse 7 says husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. That verse literally means live with your wife with knowledge. Which means when you got married, fellas, you had a number one hobby that superseded anything else you ever cared about. It's co- cared about. It's called your wife. So find out what she loves, what she wants, what her dreams are, what she would have been if it wasn't for you. You know uh, what she would have wanted to do in life if you hadn't knocked her up. You know in your marriage, and now you've got kids, and she's at home in the sandbox, hanging out with poopies, watching Veggie Tales again. Okay, live with her in an understanding way with knowledge. As a weaker vessel, chances are uh, some of you married a P31 whose arms are good and strong. All right, but chances are in an arm wrestling match, I'm putting my money on us. uh, That's what it means by weaker vessel. It also means those of you who've been married, how many of you register for China? Any of you? Worthless endeavor. You register for this China that, that, like these nice plates, you know? Most of your grandmas probably have it. That China that if you even looked at it, you got whooped. Because don't you look at it, don't you touch it, because if you break it, you know, they may never be able to get another one. And if you get the china, then they want that china cabinet that lights it all up. It's like, man, we're not even going to use that thing, you know. But that china, you treat it differently. You know, you don't put it in the dishwasher, you you hand wash it. Uh, You polish it up, you keep it looking nice, you put it in those little zipper bags that are all padded. You know, you lock it up in the safe, you know, or whatever you do. And the idea is that men, when we get married, we have to live with our wives in an understanding ways with a weaker vessel, as with fine china. But keep reading the verse. It says, uh, treat her with honor, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Uh, Very important point that we are all equal in Christ, but we are not the same. That's a big point Robert makes in men's fraternity, and I think he's right on. We are equal, but we're not the same. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life. Finish the passage, though. How does it finish in verse 7? So that your prayers will not be hindered. Your relationship with your wife is an indication of your relationship with God. The concept is, of course, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. The reality is if your wife's not happy, if your wife and your relationship is not sound, then God is not for you in those moments. God does not applaud a man who abdicates responsibility in his home. In a sense, that passage is saying, if you want to be right with God, be right with Mama. A lot easier to be right with God, though, isn't it? Because you don't have to, quote, live with God. God doesn't get mad at you when you throw your clothes on the floor or pee on the seat and forget to wipe it up or whatever (laughs) happens in your home. We've got to take care of our relationships with our spouse. Now, speak into that a little bit. We're training ourselves currently for that day. Uh, Whether it's pre-marriage or whether you're married now, the things that we do every day are are creating an atmosphere in our homes one way or the other. One of the things that has been uh, interesting is that because we have gone the way of Adam in passivity and the way of Eve in terms of rationalizing and letting our senses drive our behavior, we've become a very interesting culture. Uh, Romans chapter 1 says when you reject the truth of God for a lie and when you fail to worship the creator but instead you worship the creature, God gives you over to to your flesh that your bodies would be dishonored among them and he gives you over to a depraved mind. It's the divine abandonment. When we reject God, sexuality is the first thing to get hit, if you will. I'm reading a book right now called The God of Sex by Peter Jones. And I bought it expecting one thing, and I got a whole nother thing. Uh, It's a theology book. And I was expecting like this, like romance, like here's how you have better sex in your marriage. Who doesn't like reading a book like that? Uh, This one was more about theology. The premise of the book is that we have a jacked up sexuality because we have jacked up theology. Because we don't believe that God is holy. We don't believe that God is who He says He is. It's expressed in our sexuality. Taking a Romans 1 concept, that if God is not on the throne of our lives, if we are, we're going to be perverts to the core. Because that's a natural bent of most men is to sexual deviance. So we've got to get our theology right and our sexuality will follow. Fascinating. Because one of the issues that happens with young men is we train ourselves for Divorce. I heard something by Andy and his bride in the first breakout session about technology and, and its connections to marriage. I thought it was interesting. Um, my, uh, you know, my dad would, would always like, fix the car if it broke. You know, he'd fix it. You know, and, and it was all fine because it's a, like a you know, simple 57 Chevy. You know? Clean out the car, make sure the fuel lines are okay, no problem. You ever tr- pop, tried to pop the hood on a car that's uh, a modern car, try to fix it? You gotta be like a computer hacker to fix it. It's all electronic, it's everything's like, you know, so high tech you, you can't even like fix it. So take like a cell phone. Your cell phone breaks, you gotta fix your phone. No, you just go get another one. You just throw it away and upgrade. Just buy a new one. And in many ways, that's what's happening in our culture with the way we treat women. Uh, our sexuality is so out of control that we uh, we end up uh, engaging in activities with if you're single or even you know, married, engaging in these activities with other women, and then we just throw it out and then we get another one because it's broken now. We throw it out and get another one. We're training ourselves in a sense for divorce because we attract for the wrong reasons based typically on physical attraction, not character. When the physical attraction fades and you can't stand the way she laughs and the way she chews her food annoys you, and she breaks wind one time, and you about pass out, and you're like, you know what? I'm out. <laughs> Forget that. And you upgrade. Now you date someone else for the wrong reasons. We're training ourselves to end up in infidelity. Because I'll promise you, fellas, two ounces of gold on your finger does not change who you are on the inside. And so we've got to begin to work on who we are on the inside. One of the dangers that has hit uh, us as men is the issue of pornography. Um, Every guy I've ever met struggles with the root of lust. Paul says, No temptation has overcome you but what is common to man. Meaning there's no temptation. You, you face it, nobody else does. He said, But God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So there'll never be a situation where you're like, Oh man, it was just too much for me. I had to do it. He says, But when the temptation comes, He'll provide a way out. That issue of lust is in the heart of every man. Every single guy here to some degree will have that root in their life. The question is, how does it take fruit in your life? What does it look like? For some guys, it's homosexuality. For some guys, it's pornography. For some guys, it's other women. It's the, it's the hunt of getting something. For other guys, it's fantasy. Uh, for other guys, it's sexual addiction, even with their wives where it's like always got to have it, got to have it, got to have it. What's the fruit in your life, and have you begun to deal with it? See, for a lot of guys, first of all, they don't talk about that in church, so don't, don't dare mention it at church. Can I just tell you, we've got a church full of sex addicts. I hope you know that. We've got registered sex offenders at our church. I hope you know that. Why? Because the church is a place where sinful people come to find Jesus. Jesus didn't come to, to heal the healthy. He came for the sick. So let's just admit that. Have you dealt with the fruit? Nobody wants to talk about it in church. And then once it's brought up, they become the social lepers. Uh, and, and I really encourage you guys to identify the fruit of sexual deviance in your life. What does it look like? And what's interesting is we've kind of, um, we've kind of developed respectable sins in that nature or in that, in that realm. And then like dirty sins in that nature. So it, you can you can be... A college student who can't quit nailing his girlfriend—it's respectable. It's just sin, but it's it's respectable. But uh, boy, you touch a child, and you'll get killed. Uh, you can you can be a guy who just he just looks at porn. It's just a little porn. It's just you know just a little on the internet. That's respectable. Uh, but you you become a sex addict, and you start visiting prostitutes, and that's. That's not okay. Question. What's the difference? Is there a difference? No, the difference is social acceptability. But what does God say about it? You know, there's one time in the New American Standard translation of your Bible where God says, this is the will of God for you. How many of you would love to know the will of God? Would you like to know that? Wouldn't it be great? Turn to First Thess chapter 4. I'll show you God's will for your life, but you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> Because for most of us, when we when we hear about what God's will is, uh, it's something that we're like, man, I, my, God's will for me is I'm going to Africa and I'm going to lead the whole you know people group to Christ. That, that's not necessarily God's will. God's will, First Thessalonians, starting in verse three. This is the will of God for you. He says it's your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentile or heathen who do not know God. What is God's will for our lives? That we would learn how to handle this mess called a body that does the strangest things. Y'all remember high school? Just a raging ball of hormones and you're in algebra class? And all of a sudden you're getting aroused in algebra, and you're like, oh my gosh. Hey, so-and-so, do you want to come and answer this question on the board? No, absolutely not. Okay, it happens. We we've got to learn how to possess our vessels in sanctification and honor. God made you as a sexual creature. You need to know that. Sex is commanded by God pre fall. Pre fall. It's not a sinful act at all. It's pre-fall, which is interesting. Sometimes they'll take the cursing of Genesis to assume that the woman is cursed of increased pain in childbirth. Her desire would be for her husband, but her husband would rule over her. Desire, that word's used two other times in your Bible. Genesis 4, where sin is crouching at Cain's door and its desire is to consume him. Also in the Song of Solomon, where she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So some assume that sexuality is a curse, that these women are cursed, that even though childbirth is going to be a kick in the face, that they're going to have a sexual desire for their men, but their men will rule over them. I go, man, that's a blessing. That ain't a curse. That's not a curse at all. Uh, This whole issue of sexuality is fascinating, and we have got to learn how to possess our vessels in sanctification and honor. Not, he says, in lustful passion like the heathen who do not know God. The way we handle our bodies reflects the character of the God whom we serve. So we've got to make sure that we recognize that there is no distinction in God's eyes between respectable sins of morality and, and dirty, naughty sins of morality. We need to learn, all of us, how to possess our own vessels. Um, in sanctification, he says, not like the heathen who do not know God. Um, one of the things uh, that, that happens with this, of course... Uh, is this issue of pornography is really, really strong. Let me deal with that issue real quick. Um, the danger with pornography, of course, is that uh, you know the Scripture seems pretty clear that we ought to be satisfied always by the wife of our youth, that her breasts are what should satisfy us, that we should drink water from our own cisterns. Uh, stolen bread, he said, is sweet, but it is rotten in the end. You can read Proverbs uh, like 5, 6, and 7, great passages on this issue. Of adultery, which ultimately adultery is finding satisfaction in anything other than your wife. So Job said he he made a covenant with his eyes that he wouldn't look at a woman and lust for her in his heart. Paul said to Timothy to treat younger women as sisters in all purity. There's a sense that that those things that we look at other than our spouse uh, are immorality for us. They are adultery for us. Uh, That's an issue, by the way, that's a a cute little lion at first. That's kind of a fuzzy little thing, and you feed it, and you keep feeding it, and that thing starts growing up, and it ain't so cute anymore. In fact, now it's starting to eat you, and it's eating you, but you can't tell anybody about it, because if you do, then they'll know, but you keep feeding it. You ever wondered why you feed it? Can I give you a real convicting passage? James chapter 1 James says, uh, don't let you, uh, when you're tempted, don't don't say you're being tempted by God. God doesn't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by evil. But each one of us, he says, is tempted when we are led away and enticed by what? By our own lust. Very, very convicting passage. Because I'd really love to blame her. Y'all remember in Matrix, the woman in the red dress? Every guy fumbled when he saw the woman in the red dress. Look, the woman in the red dress didn't make you look at it. All right? She didn't make you look at it. The devil didn't make you look at it. Society didn't make you look at it. You look at it because you like it. You look at it because that sensual feeling of pleasure is more important in the moment than the glory of God. And I understand because in the moment, it always feels right. That's my point. In the moment, it always feels right, but it never feels right after. Have you noticed that? Have you ever indulged in some sinful behavior and then afterwards just thought, man, that was, yes, that was right. <laughs> I mean, that was pleasing to God. That is exalting to my wife. She would be so proud if she would have seen what I just did. Uh, my parents would look at that and call me blessed for the decisions that I've just made. See, no, we, we never look at it like that. It's always about the moment now, here. Watch the danger of pornography. You keep feeding that line, and it'll eat you. With that, though, can I deal with the issue of masturbation? I mean, you talk about a taboo word. nobody talks about that. It's an interesting thing. I've never met a single guy who's never masturbated. So if you break the trend, you can come up and, you know, tell me I'm a liar later. How's that? Uh, Most guys do. Uh, We're phallic by nature, you know, and so we go through this stage. I mean, think about it. Little guys, they find their little twig and berries, and that's all they're... I mean, it's like fascinated with it. <laughs> and truthfully, uh, most guys continue in their fascination for years. So the issue of masturbation, is it right to masturbate? Now, I, I was reading a book called uh, Sheet Music by a guy named Kevin Lehman. <clears throat> phenomenal book. And I got to the chapter on masturbation and just thought, I, I can't agree with him there. I, I, don't think, I don't think his stance is right. His stance is it's normal, it's natural. And so you should just enjoy it it's a release uh, truthfully I've never met a guy who uh, can masturbate with a pure mind uh, maybe you're Superman I don't know uh, but most of the time it's connected to something there but uh, as I've heard the issue debated that's kind of the camp Oh, so it's it's natural it's good okay just go ahead just do it in private and appropriate places the other is it's exceedingly evil Nobody answers the why question, the why is it evil, and that, that's, where, that's where I got frustrated and, and had have, have developed a, a little thought on it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7 uh, again. Let me, let me show you a passage. Let's think logically for a moment. God has wired you as a sexual creature, we would all agree. There are desires that a man has, we would all agree. Okay? Whose responsibility is it for the fulfillment of your desires as a man? In the creation of God's people, man and woman, who is responsible for your sexual fulfillment as a man? Who? You? Your wife, right? Your wife. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. I've never met a man who struggled with that. A man fulfilling his duty to his wife? Guys guy's like, yeah, game on. I got that. <laughs> Likewise, the wife must fulfill the duty of her husband. Wives do not have authority over their own bodies, but the husband does. That's why in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, after the consummation of the marriage and the honeymoon night in, in uh, chapter 4, he says, I have eaten my honeycomb. I have eaten my fruits. I have... Uh, enjoyed its balsam, I have drank deeply of the mountains of spices, he's talking about his wife having just consummated their marriage, and he, he refers to her body as his, the wife doesn't have authority over her body, it's, it's yours, likewise also the husband doesn't have authority over his body, it's hers, stop depriving one another, except uh, for agreement for a, uh, for a short time, I wish we could just add really, really short time right there so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan would not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's a command. If you're married, you need to be having sex. And if you're going to take a break, take it for a short time so that you can pray. Not because you have a headache. So that you can pray. And come back together. Why? Because it is, in a sense, the consummating union of oneness of a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. It's a great God-ordained thing in the proper context. But I want you to notice, who is responsible for the fulfillment of your, as a man's, sexual needs? It's your wife. Fulfillment of your sexual needs by any Anyone other than your wife is called what? Adultery. Adultery. Now just, this is, every once in a while you see the Apostle Paul go, this is not from the Lord, this is from me. This is one of those. Where I go. This is my hot sports opinion on the issue, because I needed to find out what I felt the Bible says about it. You can disagree with me on it, no problem. My, my premise then, is that any physical relief outside of my wife, Is sin and adultery and therefore me masturbating would be a selfish expression of me not trusting my wife God's provision for me to meet my needs therefore I abstain and I allow my wife to fulfill her duty and if you marry the right woman to fulfill her privilege of being God's instrument in your life which begs an interesting question what about those that are still single? Can I tell you one of the most frustrating truths you're ever going to find, single guys? You struggle with lust, every head nods. The big deception, deception is once you get married, you'll never struggle with lust anymore because you're married, and you're going to get married, and you're going to struggle with lust. And you're going to get old and fat, and you're going to struggle with lust. And you're going to be old and gray, and your pump won't work anymore, and you're going to struggle with lust. And that root of lust will be in you until Jesus takes you home and makes you imperishable with Him. It's a frustration, but it's true. I was talking to a pastor, Tom Nelson, the guy I studied under in Texas. And I was like, man, what? You know, I'm talking to these guys, I'm discipling, and we're, we're working on moral purity and dealing with these issues. And this issue of masturbation keeps coming up. But they're, they're bringing up the issue of dreams. Like, what do you do with that? And he kind of smiled and he laughed. And he goes, ah, oh, God's grace, brother. God's grace. I thought, man, that is really interesting. Because if you think about it, who made your body? God. Does God know your needs? Absolutely. His assumption in all of that, of course, or his premise is, if you allow God to meet your needs through the provision of your wife, uh, you'll find your body naturally will relieve itself in a nocturnal emission without you ever having to do anything about it, and God will meet your needs. He is able to meet your needs. Now, nobody talks about that issue, one, because it's fairly disgusting to talk about. In contexts like this, especially if there's ladies in the room, that's why we kicked them out. They're going to listen to this online and freak out. They're never going to look at us the same. All right, but it's an issue we've got to deal with. All right, so I challenge you guys. If that's a struggle, uh, you've got to at least come to grips in your mind as to what is right for you, because the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not masturbate. It doesn't say that. But I would challenge you that with other amoral issues in Scripture. The Bible's clear that unless you can do it by faith, with a clear conscience, and know in your heart that it is the right thing for you to do, anything not done in faith is sin. So I just encourage you to wrestle with that issue and uh, make your own decisions there. Uh, let me show you, uh, that, that's, the, that's the relationship, that's the marriage issue. How are we doing on time? Seven minutes. Yeah, seven minutes. Oh, good. Take that. We're about halfway done with what I wanted to cover. <laughs> Let me give you a reading assignment I encourage you to take a look at. I I really encourage you to read 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Okay, Shifting gears out of the sexuality marriage issue into what does it look like for a man to be a part of the body of Christ. In those two chapters you're going to find qualifications for uh, overseers, bishops, elders, deacons, Okay, leadership of the church. I encourage you to read through those. Uh, if you would like to get, we have a, a, a worksheet that we've done that's a self-assessment that you can do on how you're doing on the qualifications for elder. I think it's the chief end of every man in a church to aspire to the office of elder. Now, whether you ever become an elder or not is another story, but if you want a good benchmark of, of what it means to be a man, there's a good one. And then I encourage you to do the hard thing. If you're married, give it to your girl. Let her rate you. Don't be surprised if you get kicked in the face a little bit. But the other side is, don't be surprised if she doesn't ambush you with praise in areas you would have never expected. Uh, good challenge for you. If you'd like me to email you that thing, uh, then uh, my email is brad at thewellcommunity.org. Fire me an email, I'll attach it back to you. Turn just for a moment, though, to Second Kings chapter 20. Let me give you one caution, all right? right, uh, Second Kings 20. King Hezekiah, I don't know if many of you are familiar with this guy, he was one of the few good kings of the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. There's nothing but darkness in the northern kingdom of Israel, so it, it starts bad, gets worse. Uh, Hezekiah is a good one. Hezekiah uh, gets something very interesting from God. He's told uh, in uh, chapter 20 of Second Kings verse 1 that he's, be, he's become mortally ill. Isaiah says, get your house in order, uh, you're going to die. It may be nice to get that kind of heads up, wouldn't you agree. Like, look, hey, it's been awesome, you're a good dude, but it's over. So, you know, get your will in order, make sure your family's taken care of, because you're done, okay? Most people don't get that privilege. For most people, it's, it's a screeching of tires in a car accident, and it's gone. Uh, it's a call from the doc, you've got cancer, it's over, Heart attack, you know, that kind of thing. He gets a heads up. He responds like a uh, very, um, <laughs> a very uh, sissy boy, verse 2, He leans over, curls up in a fetal position, and it says he prays to the Lord. But you'll notice if you read his prayer in verses 3 and following, he's kind of a little punk. And he prays for more time. Oh, God, I've done so much for you. I'm so important. I'm great. Just give me more time. Note to self, if God calls you home, just go home. Just do the godliest thing you could do. Up your life insurance and go home. All right? The best and godliest thing you could do. He prays for more time. God gives him a 15-year bonus. All right? Says, okay, congratulations. You're going to have 15 more years. Verses 12 and following. The kings of Babylon hear that he was sick. And so they come to send him a little get well soon card, uh, a letter from their king. And so they show up. And in verse 13, he does something really stupid. He shows them all of his treasure house. Verse 13, the silver, the gold, and the spices, the precious oil, and the, all of his armor, all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house and in his dominion that Hezekiah did not show. Shows him everything. Look at how awesome I am. Here's my 401K. Here's my blinged out vehicles. Here's my sweet house. Here's all of my stuff, all of me. He's pointing to the back of his jersey, drawing attention to himself. Okay. Isaiah comes in and says, What have you shown these men? Verse 14, He says, man, they're from Babylon, and I showed them, verse 15, everything. And so Isaiah responds, 17, The days are coming when your house and all that your fathers have laid up will be carried away to Babylon. Nothing will be left. Some of your sons who will come from you will be taken away and will be slaves. So everything you've worked for, all your inheritance, your family name, everything's going to be taken, and your sons are going to be slaves. Now, what would you say to that? if that's what the word from Isaiah was to you. You'd think at that point you'd curl up into the fetal position, lean against the wall and cry, and ask God for a, you know, an audible. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, The word from the Lord which you have spoken is what? Is good. How in the world is that good? Is this guy that much of a moron? How is it good? I want you to notice what he says As to why it's good. Verse 19. He says, there shall be peace and truth in my days. What a selfish little punk. Peace and truth in my day. I don't care what happens to my kids. I just want to be comfortable now. Here's the caution to you as men. You are the leaders in this church. You are the ones who set the pace. You are the ones who have a choice to make, whether you will defer to mission or you will defer to preference. Your choice will determine the longevity of the body of Christ. Be encouraged. The redemptive history of God rests upon your decisions. Be encouraged. What decision will you make? How many of you have been a part of faith communities that chose preference over mission, that chose comfort over the redemptive history of God continuing? Uh, who said, I want my music, I want my seat, I want my this, I want my that, I want it the way I like it. I paid for this church, I bought this church, I pay your salary, I tithe. These kids who are irreverent and wear baggy pants and have hats on backwards and wear girl jeans and whatever else, These, these kids, all right, they don't deserve it. I've worked for it. And they choose preference over mission. And the church continues to gray and to gray and to gray until it's irrelevant. And then nobody cares when they watch it die. The challenge for us as men is to recognize the opportunity we have to look not to preference but to mission. To endure what may not be your preference for the sake of the kingdom of God. To come into church, and I see it happen every once in a while, and I love it. They come in and they pop in earplugs. And they endure the worship, because it's not what they would prefer. But they recognize as they look around that people are connecting, especially younger people, and they check preference at the door for the sake of mission. One other thought with that. It's interesting, in all moral issues of Scripture, the more mature are always called to uh, acquiesce to the less mature. Do you notice that? It's like the person who feels freedom to have a beer, is called to lower their behavior to the weakest brother present. So if somebody doesn't feel freedom at all, then it's better for them not to ever touch a beer for the sake of not offending their brother, because if they cause their brother to stumble, then they have sinned. Same issue is true in church. The older, supposedly more mature brothers among us should acquiesce their preference for the sake of the younger around us who are supposedly less mature. Now, we've got a unique situation at our church. Because 50% of our church is uh, under 30. The average age is 28. We're getting older, all right? So we don't have the same kind of battles yet. But what happens when we start taking candles off the stage or we start doing different things and people start going, well, we've never done it that way before. It happens in other churches that will happen here. The guys who set the pace in a church and check preference at the door for the sake of mission are the men. Think about it. Who did God call in Genesis chapter 11? Because it wasn't Sarah, it was Abraham. called Abraham, he called Isaac, he called Jacob. Who were the kings? Men. Who were the prophets? Men. Who were the judges? Men. Except for one time, when weak sauce men wouldn't step up and God used a gal named Deborah to do great things, it was men. Who were the pastors? Men. Who were the elders? Men. Who were the deacons? Typically, Men. Though there's an argument for deaconess. We'll get into that later. It's the men. Who are the poets of our day? Men. Who are the painters? Men. Who are the incredible uh, uh, writers and uh, communicators of our day? Men. Men. So it's us, fellas. This is it. What is the history going to be written about you and your commitment, involvement, service, mission in the things of God? Because recognize that the passivity of Adam is still present today. And the tendency for every single guy in our church is to come in, look around, and go, well, I guess it's all handled, and sit there. Maybe wine because the coffee's not quite ready on time, or the vanilla creamer's gone, or whatever. All those little things that really make no difference. Instead of recognizing that you as a man of God in our church have been called by God to subdue the earth and fulfill it, or infill it, rather, That the the image of God that is on you might spread throughout all the earth. Well, in Acts 1, it started in Jerusalem, which you went to Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the earth. For us as men, it starts here in this place. It starts in your home and how you treat your wife. It starts if you're single with how you treat your roommates, that girl that God is entrusting to you, someone's daughter who is not yet your wife, that some daddy somewhere, and I'm a little sensitive, I have girls, some daddy somewhere is hoping you're going to treat with honor like the man of God you say you are. All of those things now become the responsibility of us as men. There is no higher calling than manhood. Uh, There also is no more difficult task than authentic manhood. I hope uh, some of the things that we've shared might encourage you, stir you a little bit, challenge you, that we could take together as a band of brothers manhood and raise it up a notch together to reject the passivity of our past and to begin even now to walk in a newness of life as authentic men brought into alignment with Christ. Which, by the way, at the end of the day, you can't do any of this without Jesus Christ. So, you know, don't, don't uh, mistake the cart from the horse here. Uh, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if he is not your king, if he has not conquered you, if you have not raised the white flag of surrender in life trying to do it yourself, you have no hope for manhood whatsoever. Uh, Because most of the time we defer to extremes. Without Christ, we either get passive or we get angry as men. Only Jesus Christ can anchor you in that which is right. Start there. But once we've got that, take ourselves and let's inject ourselves into manhood together in how we treat our wives, how we treat our families, how we serve in our church, and how we reflect the glory of God to the world around us. All right? Let me pray for us. We'll go eat. How would I do on time? We good? good? Sweet. Lord, thank you for the time good to be with these men in the sauna that is this room as we uh, go and eat and uh, interact with our church, our body, maybe even our wives or the ones that you've entrusted to us, these women that we are called a steward. May we be as men an accurate reflection of the image of God to our world, that we would rule, work, submit, be gentle, love, lead, and check preference at the door that we might default to mission first. Help us to get uh, control over these vessels, to, to uh, operate them in sanctification and honor, that we would put to death the deeds of the flesh by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be men. In Christ's name, amen. Bless you guys. Thanks for taking the time.